0: Well, summer's over and uh, one of my favorite things about summer, um, of course, is going to the movies. Are any of you movie fans in the summer? I thought going into the summer there weren't going to be very good movies, but, you know, there's always something out there, am I right? And um, and a couple of different movies I saw, but one I saw recently, uh, my mom, um, she's getting a little older, God bless her, and so we have these, like, mother-son dates, and uh, we were going to go on a hike, but it was too hot, so she's like, let's go to the show. I'm like, oh, I'm taking my mom to the movies. How cool is that? And so this is my mom, so don't judge me, but she wanted to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a Quentin Tarantino movie, and if (laughs) you're— Dude, it's my mom. It's my mom, not me. I'm like, Lord have mercy. But my mom wanted to go see it. And uh, if you you, um, are a boomer and and you like Quentin Tarantino, man, this is your movie. The detail, the, the cinematography, the story, excuse me, the story. It's incredible. But if you know anything about Quentin Tarantino, it's a little violent, you know, some cussing, just a little bit. You know, it's not the best family feature. Well, if you know, whenever you go to a movie, there's always previews, and I love previews. I know that you can watch YouTubes and watch all the previews ahead of time, but no, I am getting my Coke and my popcorn, and I don't care if I've seen the preview a hundred times. I love the preview. It sets the tone for the movie. And usually they do a pretty good job of having the previews match the movie you're about to see, right? So here we are going to see Quentin Tarantino, and then there's this, uh, this preview of Goodbye Bernadette. And I'm like... Um, excuse me, we're here to see a Quentin Tarantino movie. This isn't a woman's book club sort of movie. Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, how in the world do they figure out this preview in the middle of, before this movie? And I'm like, just jumbled. I couldn't really settle into the movie. I'm wondering what I'm going to go see because this is obviously not my demographic. And I look over at my mom like, this is so stupid. Do you even want to see this? And my mom's like, I love that book. So it turns out my mom is the center of the Venn diagram between Quentin Tarantino and where'd you go, Bernadette? (laughs) So next time you go to the movies, this is the case. You've got to watch the movie and the previews and see if you're in the right demographic. Well, this happened again. I went and saw um, Hobbs and Shaw. It's the latest in the Fast and the Furious movies. It's just incredible. I feel like The Rock is like my doppelganger or my spirit animal. Like, I, like I love him. He is incredible. Ever since the Tooth Fairy, I've been, like a, been a Rock fan. And, um, and so I'm in the movie, and you can kind of tell by the makeup of the movie what kind of demographic you're in, you know? Myself. Only you know, you know, so that's why watching the movie. But sure enough, as the previews are rolling, this preview came in. Take a look. Does that look incredible? I know. I'm like all welled up as I'm getting ready to watch the Fast and the Furious movie. You know, I'm like, this is not happening. But what I realize is, Mr. Rogers and The Rock actually are, have very similar things in common. And you may not know this, as because you're probably obviously not The Rock fans. But The Rock is actually one of the kindest giant Samoans I've ever soon to meet someday, right? He is so kind. But Mr. Rogers, let's, let's be honest, like he is the epitome of kindness. Like, and what's interesting is if you grew up on Mr. Rogers, um, there was a documentary that I watched last year about it and then now this movie and you're like, listen, if you, he's weird. Like it is a weird show, right? With the sweater vest and the puppet with the big old gross nose. But like there's something about our culture right now, right, that we are like soaking it up. Because we have all the information we need, we have all the food we need, we have all the technology we need, we have every single thing that we need, but we are like this starved culture that just needs kindness. And there is kindness nowhere. And yet Mr. Rogers epitomizes it. And because he is so kind, because he actually sees people, and that's what, what, what kindness means. If you look up what does kindness mean, it's not a good definition because the dictionary says to be kind, which everyone knows you can't use the same word. So I had to go, well, what does kind mean? But it's, it's, it means that basically being friendly, and I love this part, being warm-hearted. What does it mean to be kind? It means to be warm-hearted towards somebody. And you realize nowhere in our culture, nowhere in our lives is anyone actually warm-hearted towards you. Or you towards anybody else, but because Mr. Rogers was so warm-hearted, right, he was able to, to tackle really hard things. He, I mean, he was the first of his in his era to talk about um, divorce, racism, um, um, mental and um, physical disabilities, and he just saw people. He sat down in his weird little sweater vest, and he extended kindness, and people soaked it up. And it's so interesting for us in our culture. We are just soaking it up right now because obviously it is happening nowhere. And that brings me to what I want to talk about this morning, this idea of kindness. Kindness, I think, is this hidden detail in the gospel. We're good church people. We want to know Scripture. In fact, we've, we're getting close. Next week, we're wrapping up our summer in the Scriptures, and we've been asking you to read Scripture and to read Scripture and to read Scripture. And I think we, we want to be learners. We want to know all this about Scripture. But as we're learning, I think we're forgetting a couple important details. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the Gospel and, uh, and see that kindness. Gosh, it really matters, not just for Mr. Rogers, but even more so for the church and for God's people. So if you have a Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3. This was near the end of this week's reading, and uh, we will hop into our time together. So here we are. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. It begins like this. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. For this is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things so that, no, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them for you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. You got to admit it ends kind of on a low note, but that first part was, was pretty powerful. Well, I love the gospel, and really what the gospel means is the gospel is good news. that's what it means. The gospel is good news. And if you've been around the church a long time, or if you're brand new, I mean the thing is, the story of Jesus, the story of Scripture, is such good news. It is the best news on the planet. And in these few verses, like all these mountains of theology are packed into these couple little verses. It begins like this. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So He saved us. So the very beginning is, okay, there's obviously some bad news because you wouldn't need saving. And there's all sorts of gazillions of pages written about, well, what does that look like for God to have saved us? Some people think, um, basically it's like this. You're out five miles out, out in the ocean and you're, and you're swimming and there's sharks all around you and you're about to drown and a, and a boat comes rolling up and Jesus you, the life preserver, and all you have to do is grab a hold of life preserver, and you're saved. Right? Because we're all struggling, we're all drowning. We're, our sin and our brokenness and all things around us are causing this death and destruction in us, and Jesus saves us. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, he actually puts it this way He's like, No, 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 no. It's not that you're, you're, you're flapping around the water, you are on the very bottom of the ocean dead. Like, that's how messed up you are. That's how sinful you are. That's how lost you are. You're on the bottom of the ocean dead. And Jesus jumps off the boat, swims to the bottom of the ocean, picks you up and saves you and restores you. You're saved. He says, he saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we've been born again. Um, John talked about this in John 3. If you're like a child of the 70s, man, the born-againers, like, right? But the picture is this idea that you were once, you're born a first time, but you're born spiritually dead. But when you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and fills you. The Holy Spirit washes all of your sin away. It empowers you. And it says that the Holy Spirit generously pours his Holy Spirit into us. The people of God have been longing to have this kind of intimacy with God. All the way back in Exodus, there's the tabernacle. And and Moses sets up the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, God says, listen, soon I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And that theme is over and over and over again, all the way even till the end of Revelations where God says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Uh, The the prophet Joel in 2.22 says at the end times, God's going to pour his Holy Spirit out upon you. Gosh, this is rich theology, right? That He saved us. He washes us. We're born again. He pours out His Holy Spirit on us. And then it says this, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, right? Being justified means that you were wrong and there has to be justice. If you think of it this way, if you break a window, you have to pay for it, right? It's $100. You break a window, you have to pay for it. Um, You're guilty until you pay for it. Paying for it now makes it right, right? Well, our sin, our brokenness is so big that we can't do anything to make it, to make ourselves right. And so Jesus— pays the penalty for our sin, and He justifies us, right? So we were guilty. He steps, He takes the punishment, and we're safe. Like, this is incredible stuff. This is like giant stuff. This is why everyone goes to seminary so you can spend $40,000 to know all this stuff. And it says that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life, right? We know that. At the very end, we get to have everlasting life. Beginning now for all of eternity, we get to spend time with God, that He truly is our God and we are people. This is, is incredible news. Amen? Okay. Well, if you're anything like me, every single one of those statements has so much theology packed to it, has so many actual controversies packed into it, has so many different opinions. And so what happens is you start learning, you start growing because you're so excited about all that God's doing, and you want to make sure you have good theology so you can know and love God, and you take care of all the details, and you find your systematic theology person that you like the most, and then you become like, you, it's like your, your battle, and you're ready to take on the world and those other Christians who don't know as much as you because you know all that you need to know. That's our posture. And it's good. Um, But really what happens if we're not careful, we go from being learners to becoming ideologues, An ideologue is someone who basically isn't a real person anymore, but just has a position paper, right? If you know Christians like this, like you can't even talk to them because they're always like, well, praise the Lord this. You're like, well, what do you think about that? Well, praise the Lord this, Right. You become an ideologue. My stepmom is like the perfect ideologue. Um, she basically, Rachel Maddow is her position paper. All she does is watch Rachel, Rachel Maddow on, on, on loop. And, uh, and because I'm a jerky uh, stepson, um, I always like to get under her skin. So we're having dinner and they're getting ready to go to Israel. And so I'm like, hey, when you go to Israel, you should go visit uh, Rashid Tlaib because she, um, she couldn't get to go and see her grandmother. And my stepmom goes, I know. And then just gives me the whole Rachel Maddow thing about... Um, how Trump would let her go and the whole thing. its This is inside baseball. But basically, she didn't offer one thing to me. She just get rattled off this thing. Not her, just her position papers. And we do that all the time with politics, with theology. We want to, Because I think we want to be right, but our desire to be right ends up actually limiting what we actually think. And so it helpful, it's helpful, I found, to realize that there's actually an additional detail that we need. And I don't know about you, but I don't like details. Are, are there any non-detail people in here? Just us, two. Okay, Annie, I get it. Well, I hate details. And I knew I hated details um, when I, uh, f- some friends of mine kept telling me, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. It was called A Severe Mercy, and it was about C.S. Lewis's love affair and his deep friendship. But it was a biography, and it was written like a novel. And I, I remember it vividly. I'm in bed reading it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's an entire chapter of him and his girlfriend driving along a lake. Dude, you got to the lake. What happened? That's how I roll. As a history major, as as someone who went to seminary, right, you skim, you get details and facts. None of this detail. I don't care about the flowers. I don't care about the conversations. I don't care about the details. But the truth is, if good Christians, we actually want to be people who care about the details. The details actually matter. And so I want to read through this passage of Scripture one more time because there's some details that I think as, as good theologians and maybe as some ideologues that we actually miss about the gospel. It says this, but when the kindness of love, i sorry, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. So before we even get to all the good theology, all the stuff that we can divide over and point our fingers at it as a heretics, it begins with the kindness and love of God. He saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He didn't just give us His Spirit, He gave us His Spirit generously. And he doesn't justify us, but He justifies us out of grace. And so the truth is the details matter. The details in our theology matter, but even more, I think the details of our posture towards God and God's posture towards us matter. I mean, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing to think about that God's posture towards us is kindness, is warm-heartedness. And I want that to be true. I preach about it. I read scriptures. I talk. I, mean, I want that to be true so bad. But if I'm honest, in my heart of hearts, when I'm sitting down and I have my prayer time, God is like a coach or an angry dad or, or a, you know, someone who's telling me what to do that I'm not measuring up and I have all this inner stuff that I'm wrestling with. But what a game changer if my posture towards God, if my mental picture of who God is, is that He is kind. He's friendly. He's warm-hearted. He longs to know you and to be in relationship with, with you. Gosh, that would be a game changer. And uh, what's, what's helpful is to think about, um, I think the best picture of this is the picture of adoption. Because anyone can have kids, but if you can't have kids, um, then there's uh, other options. And my friend Eric, who's a pastor in Minnesota, him and his wife Jess said they couldn't have kids. And, uh, but they felt like God invited, wanted them to have a family. And uh, so they were like, what creative way are we going to have a family? And through some friends and all those sorts of things, they said, oh, we're going to adopt a daughter. And we're going to adopt a daughter from South Africa. And this is Nosifo, who she's 11 now. She's the same age as my daughter. And they adopted her when she was four. And what's incredible about adoption is no one just says, oh, I'm going to have a kid. Like I thought I'm going to have kids. And then because of the way I was raised, my kids are going to do chores. That's why I was so excited to have kids. When my kid's old enough, they're going to get to mow the lawn. And I remember at four, I tried to teach my son how the, how the lawnmower worked and Kay's like, what are you doing? You have kids that have chores because that's the dysfunctional family I came from. But when you adopt somebody, when you, when you have to make the intention, like, you know, what, we're going to drop $60,000. We're going to let someone from a different culture, from a different part of the world come and invade our house. All of a sudden, their whole posture, they were fascinated by Nasifo. They were fascinated by her. She would be punching people in the face because that's how you did it in the orphanage so that you could get enough food. If you wanted a blanket, you'd punch someone in the face and take their blanket. And then, and like, if I'm like, well, geez, you got to lock them down. You got to lock her down. You got to show her who's boss. They're like, no, she's our daughter. She's they're warm-hearted and fascinated, right? We gotta help her to quit punching people. But what's next? And they're fascinated, right? It's a whole different posture. And that's really God's posture towards us. He intentionally adopted you as daughters and sons. And he's fascinated by you. God longs to be with you and he longs to watch you learn how to walk and ride a bicycle. And he is mesmerized when he realizes that you love math and that you love biology and that you love to draw. He's like, I cannot believe my daughter. Look what she's developing. What she, look what she's becoming into. He's not like, gosh, she's going to be the last kid on the block who knows how to ride a bicycle. Right? That's not God's posture at all. He's so leaning in and so excited for who you are becoming. He's kind-hearted. How different would our life be, would our faith be, if we could just get our head that God is kind towards us? I think it's a game-changer. Because we long to be people who move towards Christ, and as we move towards Christ, right, then Christ is actually going to mold us and shape us into His image. So if God is this righteous judge who doesn't tolerate any sin, which is true, but if that's our only picture, then we become righteous judges who only tolerate our own sin, but not other people's sin, I found. But what if we can get an idea that God is kind He's warm-hearted. He loves you. He's fascinated by you. Wouldn't that change how you understand God, how you understand others? So almost everywhere in Scripture, if you read all the different epistles, is you have part of the book that's here's all the good theology, and then there's the next part, which is, well, then what does that look like? And this this passage is no different. So it goes on, um, it talks about the fruit of um, of this kindness. It says, this is a trustworthy saying. I want to stress these things so that those who have been entrusted to God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. For these things are excellent and profitable for everybody. The fruit of kindness is this idea of doing good. And a lot of times we think of doing good as being good people. But doing good was kind of shorthand in the Christian community back then. And it meant two very important things. To do good meant, one, that you are someone that is becoming good right this idea of personal holiness we don't like talking about that that's not part of our culture but followers of Christ people who move towards Christ Jesus actually longs to mold us and shape us that we are holy people set apart people people who aren't giving into the same addictions and sins and brokenness anymore we're allowing God to mold us and shape us to be the good people that God has dreamt us to be and there's some hard work involved in that we're devoted to becoming these good people Not only are we becoming devoted to becoming good people, because if that was the only thing, then we'd be devoted to being self-righteous people. But we're devoted to becoming good people who then take our goodness and are a light to the world. We extend our goodness and our good deeds and our graciousness to the world around us because God longs for His people to be His testimony, to be the people who expand the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's our calling. That is our noble calling. And I love the way this passage says it. It says, devote yourselves and devoting is a totally warm-hearted, kind posture. And I realize the way that I'm wired naturally, I'm not a devoter. I am a dutiful person. I'm conscientious. If you tell me to do something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to white-knuckle it and make sure I'm trying my hardest to be a good person, to do the right thing. If you tell me to be here this time, I'm going to be there five minutes early. I'm going to do whatever it takes because I am dutiful. But what a difference, right, to being a dutiful husband and being a devoted husband. It's a little bit different, right? It's a difference between being a dutiful dad and a devoted dad. A dutiful Christian and a, and a um, I just blanked on the word, devoted Christian, right? That's what it means to be kindness. That's the detail that I think we miss in this adventure towards Christ, longing to be good people. We miss this tiny little adventure that God in His kindness invites us, and we in our kindness respond to God. And then it goes on to say this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels. So as we're becoming good people, as we're longing to do good things, we have to make sure that we avoid these foolish controversies. I don't know if you saw this movie Behind the Curve, but this is Mark Sargent. He's the head of the Flat Earth Society, and I feel like that's a pretty good uh, foolish, um, foolish example of foolish controversy. Um, and we, actually in the same way, Scripture is like, do not be involved in foolish controversies. So this one, don't get involved in it. But what's interesting about theology is the things that we believe and the things that we don't really care about, we go, those are foolish. Those are silly. And this whole passage of scripture, there's a foolish controversies and genealogies and, um, and arguments. And what they're talking about is that there were Christians that were wrestling with how do we follow Christ? And what does that mean? There's all these, like, there's all these legends that were rooted in genealogy. And Paul's like, listen, don't, don't concern yourselves with these. They're saying, well, what are we supposed to do with all these laws and how are we supposed to imply the laws? It's like, do not get involved in those things. Instead, devote yourself to being good. But you know, because we are actually ideologues at heart, we love debating, we love being right, we love clarifying the lines around ourselves, and we're on the in group and they're on the out group, all we do is use foolish controversies. But I think Jesus, in our kind-heartedness, is saying, no, 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 we don't argue for the sake of arguing. We don't involve ourselves in foolish controversies. And what's interesting is the church, for all of human history, has had controversies. There's always been things that divided Christians, always things that have been dividing the church. And in fact, there were actually seasons where the way that they made sure if you were on board or not, they would like burn you at the stake. So now we just say, I disagree with you, or we, or we, we block them on Facebook. But back then it was real, real talk. Well, I, um, I, I spent this week thinking of like all the different kinds of controversies and there's like, there's this bazillions of them. So I wanted to just share with you at least a list. These are things that I found interesting. You could come up with your whole list, but in the, in the, the, the church, in our church, and even in recent history, some of these things Christians have just been divided over. They've been ideologues about, and they've gone to World War III over. So in the beginning, right, there was circumcision. There was the unclean food, whether or not Christians could eat bacon. There was the nature of Jesus and the Trinity. Did you know that if you think that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like an egg, you're a heretic and you would have gotten burned at the stake. Just a little fun tip for you. Trinity is just a mystery. You've got to just put it there. Um, where is authority found? Is it found in tradition? Is it found in the Pope? Is it found in Scripture? There's always been racial tensions and Christians have always had to navigate racial tensions and slavery. What about resisting, whether you resist or you submit to government authority? Christians have always been divided on that. Sexual boundaries and practice, faith and science, divorce, drums, um, the end times, (laughs) women in ministry and leadership, movies, alcohol, gambling, pot, sexuality, just goes on. And there's always reasons for us to be divided, always things to be girded up. And I think what Paul's saying is, listen, those things aren't divided. We don't posture ourselves in a way to divide one another. If we're kind-hearted people, we engage people totally differently. So think of it this way. Here's kind of a pro tip. Quit saying, can you believe? Think of all the conversations that you have. Can you believe? Can you believe those people? Here's a super simple one. I got in some trouble last, last hour, but that's okay. But... I was watching the news this week, right? And you go, can you believe that Trump uh, thinks, what did he say? He's like, he's the chosen one. Can you believe that? And if you're like an anti-Trump person, you're like, I know, what a moron. You're like, you're in my tribe. Or you're like, he was just being funny. What's the big deal? And you're like, oh, you're not in my tribe, right? And so we have this way of dividing people based on whatever. And we go, can you believe? Can you believe the church? Can you believe? And all we're doing is drawing up these big walls, but kind-hearted people aren't like that. Kind-hearted people lead out of their own things. Kind-hearted people are wrestling with things, right? It's, a, it's really dangerous and scary to say, man, as a Christian, as a Christian leader, as a follower of Christ, I don't know what to do with Trump. That's kind of a scary thing to say. I don't, right? In this room, there's Republicans and Democrats sitting right next to each other who all think different things, and I'm wrestling with it, but that's way more dangerous to put out there I don't know what to do with that. Or I'm really confused about this. Or I'm struggling with this. Or I want to apply this to my life, but I don't know what that means. Right? That's, that's the posture of being kind because we are being generous and kind-hearted, but it's also dangerous, right? As opposed to, can you believe? And we draw the firm lines. So don't get involved in foolish controversies. Doesn't mean to not think. Doesn't mean to not have convictions. But instead of firebombing people who are different than you, right, you engage them with kind-heartedness. So lastly, I just think this, that kindness... Kindness is the needed expression of faith. There's lots of great theologians. Christians are doing lots of great work in the world. That is so true. But I do think the thing that we've missed, the added detail that I think the church has forgotten, that we as Christians have forgotten, that God has called us to be kind the way that God has been kind to us. That we are to be warm-hearted the way that God is warm-hearted towards us that we should be fascinated with people who are different than us, right? Instead of being scared by people who have different opinions and different views and different politics and different theology and are part of different churches, even different religions, instead of being freaked out by them, what if we were fascinated by them? I cannot believe God would make you like that. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the right way to posture yourself. But just be fascinated. I cannot, but like, When we're fascinated and warm-hearted, all of a sudden you have an opportunity to build friendship. You have an opportunity to have conversation. And who knows, they actually might teach you something as well. God longs for us to be like Him, to be holy for sure, to do good things for sure, but to also be kind. God has been kind to you, and God longs for you to be kind to those around us. Boy. That'd be kind of a fun church to be a part of. That'd be a fun movement to be a part of. Everyone would be like, you guys are the weirdest because you wear sweater vests. We're like, and you throw your shoes and you have weird puppets. I know. But our culture is in such desperate need for kindness that Mr. Rogers is our hero right now. And we should have cornered the market. It's no wonder, actually, you may not know this, but Mr. Rogers, he's a Presbyterian pastor. He's not just some good person. He's someone who was molded and shaped by Christ, who received the kindness of God. And then extended that kindness, changed kids, changed our culture. And that's what we are invited to do as well. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, gosh, I pray I don't so quickly roll over those words because I say them all the time. But you are a gracious Father who loves us, who adopted us into your family as daughters and sons. You're a gracious God. You're a kind God. These are all things to be true as you are postured towards us. And we, as your rebellious and needy and immature kids, God, we long for you to continue to be gracious towards us. To pick us up back off the bike after we've crashed again. To keep wrestling and learning what it means to be kids who can honor you with our lives. To be holy and righteous and to do good things. But not at the expense of crushing those people around us. So may we be holy because you're holy, but may we also be kind because you are kind. And may we give testimony to the incredible gospel, the incredible good news of Jesus' death on the cross, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for the glory of your son, Jesus. And all of God's kids said, "Amen," amen and amen.